Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, since we cannot stand before you relying on anything we have done, help us trust in your abiding grace and live according to your word. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Any announcements from Pastor or anything? Nope. Okay. The afternoon starts on the second Saturday of October. So if anybody, if you know anybody who's going to join St. John or if you're going to join St. John, there'll be breakfast here at 830 on the 14th of October. We'll see you there. Thank you. Okay. Excellent. So uh, today I've titled it Go to Church. Pastor has been talking to you about that for the past year or two or three or four. Um, <laughs> sometimes it's worked, okay? That we're, you're here, you're here. So I'm preaching to the choir. Um, and I'm going to do so on the basis of some passages in the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. Um, and maybe to get us there, um, I've got a text for you at the top of your page there from Acts chapter 2. Very succinct little passage, but it's our earliest description of actually what the first Christians did when they got together. Okay. And the context here is this is just after the Apostle Peter has preached his Pentecost sermon, and as it says, there were added that day about 3,000 souls, 3,000 baptized on Pentecost Day. And then it says what these 3,000 did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to communion in the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And it hasn't changed since. This is exactly what we do here every Sunday. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Well, what are the apostles' teaching? You can always go to the Sunday school answer. Jesus, Jesus, okay, okay, okay. They're teaching about Jesus. On what basis are they teaching about Jesus? They have seen the risen Jesus, okay? They've seen the resurrected Lord. Not only that, but they had been with him before that as well. So they've got their whole experience with Jesus. And, you know, Pastor in the sermon outlined all of these things that Peter encountered. Terrific stuff. And now they've seen him risen. I would add one other thing. Uh, among those resurrection appearances, especially in the Gospel of Luke, it says that Jesus opened their mind to understand the scriptures. And that's something brand new for them. So their experience with Jesus, seeing the risen Lord, and now they understand the scriptures in the light of Jesus. The two men on the road to Emmaus, Jesus, uh, beginning with all the scriptures. He opened their minds to understand everything about him in the scriptures, the Old Testament. Okay, so now that comes to life. And uh, I'm going to touch on that a little bit in the letter to the Hebrews as well. So the light bulb is going on that they're understanding their scriptures in a brand new way. And then the second half is, and to communion in the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Breaking of the bread is the, uh, probably the earliest name for what we would more normally refer to as Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, those kind of terms. Luke uses that term several times in the book of Acts. Um, so those, those two things, the, the first and second half of the service. Opening the scriptures, hearing the scriptures, unpacking the scriptures, and then the breaking of the bread 
receiving Christ's body and blood. Now, the letter to the Hebrews, uh, rather fascinating document, and the reason I'm going to be turning to that is that uh, it's really the uh, only document in the New Testament that, that we have that gives us an indication that the folks aren't coming to church. They've stopped coming. I've highlighted it in kind of bold type about two-thirds of the way down the page, where he has to say, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. So I'm going to kind of probe the, why is it that they have stopped coming together to get this good stuff of hearing about Jesus and receiving his body and blood? Why aren't they gathering together? And then take a look at what he does to try and pull them back, come on back to the assembly. Letter to the Hebrews, just very briefly, um, we don't know who the author is, never mentions anything about him or herself. Uh, as the case might be, uh, in terms of authorship. We do know it's not written by an apostle because uh, he talks about that uh, the things they've heard about the Lord Jesus were delivered to us by those who heard him speak, which would be the apostles, right? Um, so this, it appears that the author and the readers have not gotten things from the apostles. So apostolic authorship uh, is perhaps not the case here. Um, addressees, we're a little firmer on this. Uh, it's definitely Christians who grew up Jewish and have now come to believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah, Savior, and Lord. Um, it seems that they uh, may be from one of the house churches in Rome, and their danger is well, they've stopped coming to church, at least some of them, and of relapsing back to Judaism. So apparently, kind of reading between the lines, uh, the addressees here uh, grew up Jewish, they became Christians, and now their Jewish relatives, friends, are saying, forget Jesus and come back to where you once were, okay? Renounce Jesus and come back. So there's gonna be a variety of arguments uh, in, in here regarding that, particularly on who is Jesus. So right at uh, pretty much the first half of the uh, letter to the Hebrews is, uh, deals with questions uh, emphasizing Jesus as being greater than something else. First one is Jesus is greater than the prophets. So the, these readers of the letter are, are hearing from their Jewish friends and relatives, you can't tell me Jesus is really greater than our prophets of old. Or what about angels? I'm going to be talking a bunch more about angels here today eventually. Uh, you can't tell me Jesus is greater than an angel. And he goes through a whole long list of arguments as to why that is the case, that Jesus is indeed much greater than angels. And what about Moses, the, the pinnacle figure, the greatest of the prophets in the Old Testament, you know, in the presence of God, Mount Sinai got the law. You can't tell me Jesus is greater than Moses. And uh, brilliantly, in the letter to the Hebrews, uh, he deals with that issue in six verses and says, yeah, Jesus is better than Moses. <laughs> Basically, he says, Moses had to get permission to go into the tent and talk with God. It's Jesus' house, he argues, and Jesus doesn't need a key or he doesn't have to ring the doorbell. He's got immediate access. Okay, so Moses is just a servant. Jesus is, Jesus is the son, 
therefore, you know, the sun goes inside. Okay. And then the last issue is on the issue of Christians calling Jesus a priest. Now I suppose that's sort of commonplace. We hear Jesus called a pr prophet, priest, and king, th those kind of terms. But um, the earliest Christians want to explain what actually happened on the cross. The New Testament could go from various angles on that, okay, and say it was a miscarriage of justice, you know, an innocent person was executed, but the New Testament really doesn't go that direction. It actually wants to say that Jesus' death actually does something. You tell me, what does it do? Takes our sin away. Takes our sin away, exactly. Takes our sin away. And once you use that language in a Jewish context, you are in a priestly context. So the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament dealing with things like taking away sin, forgiving sin, and for that you need somebody from the tribe of Levi. You need a priest to do that. The problem is everybody knows Jesus isn't from the tribe of Levi. He doesn't have that kind of blood in him. Therefore, the Jewish argument is you can't talk about Jesus forgiving sins. He's not appointed. So, for that, we need to go to the pillow in front of the altar that talks about being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, okay? So Jesus is a priest just not a Levitical priest. So there's a whole series of passages where lines up that argument, all to get at that answer to the question, how can Jesus forgive sins? And, and understood it in a, in a Jewish context. Um, so, uh, date on the letter to the Hebrews is probably before 70 AD. That's when the temple is destroyed. A lot of arguments in the, in the letter to the Hebrews about how uh, what Christ has done has uh, replaces, fulfills, renders obsolete the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Um, and if the temple had still been standing, the argument is the author would have used that. Jesus had forecasted the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Perhaps the author would have used that argument. Look, the temple isn't even standing anymore. God has dealt with that. It's an argument from silence, which is always a tough one to make, but I think in this case it does carry some weight. Anyway, so uh, we have, uh, right in the middle of your page there, page one, the line out of Hebrews 10, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. So he's saying that Jesus has entered the holy place, the place of encountering God. And I think there is a tie in here to what happens at the death of Jesus at the very bottom of the page. In the Gospel of Mark, we're told that Jesus breathes his last, and then the veil of the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom. And I know Protestants always want to say this is, uh, this is to show that we don't need a priest. You know, it's really to get Jesus in. This that same verb, ripping, 
is used in Mark's gospel at the baptism of Jesus. The heavens were ripped apart. The Holy Spirit comes and the voice from heaven. So there's this conduit. So I, I think it's come back here at the death of Jesus. Jesus has died and now his blood is going before God. And we follow him. And we follow him. So let us go back to the previous passage. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance of faith, etc. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promises is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day approaching. And then he goes on in that next paragraph to remind them that when they first became Christians, they put up with a lot. They've already been persecuted. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. So they, they've had to endure a lot, particularly at the beginning in those earlier days. That last sentence of that paragraph, you need to persevere. Um, so I would just like to stop and pause and say, well, why now are they not meeting together? Hmm. Well, I don't think that their answer right off is going to be because we don't believe anymore. I don't think that's the reason. I, I, I think it's uh, because folks might be watching where they're meeting together. So the issue with the early Christians from a government standpoint, a Roman standpoint, is going to be that they, Christians do not have the right to assemble. And Romans really are viewing the assembly as, a, as much a political as a religious kind of thing. Um, Jews had an exemption. Judaism was a legal religion in the Roman world. Jews could build their synagogues and people were flocking to them. We, we know this from the writings of, of Paul. Um, Judaism is up and coming in, in the Roman world. The only issue is going to be who's, you know, 100 years from now, are there going to be more Jews or more Christians? Okay. Uh, synagogues are full. Most of the synagogues are being filled by Gentiles who were bought into the tenets of Judaism, but at least for guys, haven't made the final commitment by being circumcised. And that's where Paul gets his converts. So we've got Judaism is up and coming. In fact, there was a, in Turkey, in the uh, ancient city of Aphrodisius, um, archeologists discovered a Jewish synagogue and they discovered a donor column. Yeah. Every church I've ever been in except this one, okay, uh, has, a, has, a, has a big plaque of who gave what, okay, 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 who donated stuff, okay. Um, it just blew the archaeologists' minds uh, on this when they discovered on this plaque of who's given to the synagogue 54 Gentile names. Who would have thought? They're not just coming on Saturdays. They're given money. <laughs> and it's those folks that Paul is converting to Christianity who then leave. Hmm, the synagogue has lost its prospects and it's lost its 
money. And that's why the, the Jews are jealous and they run Paul out of town. So, um, Judaism does have an exemption. Because uh, the Romans were rather impressed with Judaism because it was old. Uh, Moses lived before the founding of the city of Rome and that impressed the Romans. Once the followers of Jesus are kicked out of the synagogue, they don't have the umbrella of protection anymore. And the Jews from the synagogue are telling the Roman authorities, look, these aren't Jews. Are you gonna do something about them when they get together? They don't have the legal right to assemble. So I, I think they, uh, the reason they aren't coming together is, is less that they uh, have given up the faith altogether, um, but they just don't want people watching them. They're not willing to be known publicly as followers of Christ. Next page. There is, I gave you last time a letter, a letter by this Roman statesman Pliny the Younger. He's good for a lot of stuff. So I'm, 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 I'm gonna give you another letter from Pliny the Younger. High-ranking Roman official, he is governor of Bithynia, which is uh, northwestern Turkey. He is writing, in this case, not to his client, a lower person. He's writing to somebody much higher. He's writing to the emperor Trajan. And he's writing to Trajan here on the issue of what to do with Christians. And, and uh, Pliny says in the letter that this, this is the first time I've really in, encountered these folks, okay? But people are turning them in to me. And then he, he, as we'll see, he lists what he's done and asks Trajan's advice as, you know, did I do it right? This is also quite fascinating because this is the uh, first document to refer to deaconesses as well in the Christian church. Deacons are mentioned in the New Testament. Even uh, the, a female, a Phoebe, uh, the masculine term is used. This is the first time the feminine version of that word is actually used. Date on the letter, 112 AD. So, Put this in the, in the mix. So what to do with Christians? It's my practice, my Lord, to refer to you all matters concerning which I am in doubt. For who can better give guidance to my hesitation or inform my ignorance? I have never participated in trials of Christians. I therefore don't know what offenses it is the practice to punish or investigate and to what extent. And I've been not a little hesitant as to whether there should be any distinction on account of age or no difference between the very young and the more mature, whether pardon is granted for repentance or if a man has once been a Christian, it does him no good to have ceased to be one. Whether the name itself, even without offenses or only the offenses associated with the name are to be punished. Okay. So I would just kind of say there that the, the, the problem the Romans would have with Christians is not what you believe in your heart of hearts uh, and, the, and, the, and even practices. I mean, the Romans have conquered all kinds of peoples and they allow them to have their own religious practices, the Egyptians, whatever. As long as you acknowledge the gods of Rome, because that's what really keeps the empire safe. The gods worshipped in the city of Rome. We're going to see how that plays out. Meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time. 
threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserved to be punished. Okay. There were others possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transferred to Rome. Trajan, you can deal with it now. Soon accusations spread, as usually happens, because of the proceedings going on, and several incidents occurred. An anonymous document was published containing the names of many persons. Those who denied that they were or had been Christians, when they invoked the gods in words dictated by me, offered prayer with incense and wine to your image, which I had ordered to be brought in for that purpose, and moreover cursed Christ, none of which those who are really Christians, it is said, can be forced to do. These, I thought, should be discharged, in other words, killed. Others, named by the informer, declared that they were Christians, but then denied it, asserting that they had been, but had ceased to be, some three years before, others many years, some as 20 years, 25 years before. Okay. So we may think sometimes in a, this pristine era of the first century Christianity that everybody you know, was willing to be a martyr. Well, not so, not so. All worship your image and the statues of the gods, cursed Christ. They asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their faith or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God and to bind themselves by oath, not to some crime, but to not commit fraud, theft, adultery, da 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 uh, even this, they affirmed, they had ceased to do after my edict by which, in accordance with your instructions, I had forbidden political associations. That's the issue. Getting together. Accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved excessive superstition. Therefore, I decided I had a right to you. Okay. All right, flip the page. Trajan writes back. You observed proper procedure, my dear Pliny, in sifting the cases of those who had been denounced to you as Christians. For it's not possible to lay down any general rule to serve as kind of a fixed standard. They are not to be sought out. If they are denounced and proved guilty, they are to be punished. With this reservation, that whoever denies that he is a Christian and really proves it, that is, by worshiping our gods, even though he was under suspicion in the past, shall obtain pardon through repentance. But anonymously posted accusations ought to have no place in any prosecution, for this is both a dangerous kind of precedent and out of keeping with the spirit of our age. So it's often supposed that Trajan is being lenient here? No, okay, he just wants you to follow proper procedure. Don't, you're not on a witch hunt, use that phrase, okay, to, to sniff out, you know, who's there. But if people are reported to you, okay, then you're obligated to check, check it out, okay. And, particu and particularly, it's really only concerned that they offer the pinch of incense to the gods of Rome. 
So that's the kind of mix that the readers uh, to whom the letter to the Hebrews is addressed are dealing with. Um, they don't want to get together, okay? Because then they'll be asked these questions. So what, is, uh, what does the author of the letter do to try and get them back to church? Well, first of all, okay, he reminds them, as we saw on page one, that they already had endured stuff. It's not as if they haven't in encountered persecution. They did and were able to hold on to the faith in the face of that. Then, of course, uh, at the start of chapter 12, right in the middle of page three, um, he reminds them that they are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and he's referring there to all of these uh, individuals that he had named in chapter 11. It's often referred to as the heroes of faith chapter. Individuals from the Old Testament who remained faithful to God, okay, in spite of everything. Okay, so you've got all of these witnesses in the past, people who remained faithful, okay. And then, as if that isn't enough, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we believe Jesus has risen from the dead and is now in glory. That's the ultimate destiny, okay? So endure like Jesus because you've got a destiny now like his. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And he calls all this discipline. Okay. Uh, kind of different perspective than some other places in the New Testament when talking about being persecuted for being a Christian. He talks about his, this is God is disciplining you and you should take that as a sign that you are a child of God. He's calling you sons. He's, God is treating you as sons through this persecution. And then he goes on to something else. There's another reason to come back. Maybe this is even more pointed. So the one, the one answer could simply be, uh, what can help you hold on to your faith, even publicly, but what can bring you actually back to the assembly? Back to the assembly. In spite of the fact that, you know, the authorities might be watching. And, and I always say it's, it's never a mystery to the Roman authorities where the Christians are hanging out. We sometimes think that, you know, the Christians are hiding somewhere and, you know. No, just follow the beggars. They know where the Christians are on Sundays. Huge crowds of beggars, okay. Yeah. I, I've been to Ethiopia several times. It's like walking back 2,000 years, okay. Every, every church has, a, you know, hundreds of beggars out front. They know the Christians give. That's, I think, the case here, okay? So what will actually bring the folks back actually into an assembly, okay? Last paragraph, page three. He tells them, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom, a tempest and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. He's, he's talking about Mount Sinai, the event giving of the law. 
you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heaven Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels in festal gathering. The, uh, the Greek there, uh, compound word, basically meaning the, uh, a public assembly or forum, or I would even tweak it as a reference to the divine council. In the, in the Old Testament, uh, there are numerous times, a lot of it in the Psalms, that talks about uh, God in the presence of the angels, and they're all meeting, a, a big meeting with uh, angels and archangels, and there are, where God has decided to do something, he's giving orders. Right? That's the, so when it says, uh, you've come to uh, myriads of angels in festal gathering, that doesn't mean how they're dressed. It's talking about the assembly. So it says, that's what actually happens in church. That the divine council, God and his heavenly host, is here with us. And not only that, you've come, when you come together, you come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That would be the martyrs. And to God, of course, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's that whole list of folks he outlined in chapter 11, okay? The Christians who have died, they're with God. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So you want to come back to church because that's where God is, that's where the risen Lord Jesus is, and that's where the whole host of heaven is as well. So my ultimate goal here for you this morning is to get you to think that when you hear in the divine service those famous words we hear every Sunday, therefore with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying that with doesn't simply mean we're singing here and they're singing up there. No, it means the up there has come down here. They are with us here, okay? They are with us here. There's this verse out of uh, 1 Corinthians 11.10, bottom of page three. I'm not going to go into the whether well, women should wear hats issue here. Um, Paul, however, does say that a woman should cover her head because of the angels. What is that about? I think, the issue in Paul's mind is because, and the whole context is the Christian assembly, getting the word and the sacrament, okay, angels are present. Okay. This is very brought out very pointedly uh, in the uh, Eastern Orthodox uh, divine liturgy in two places, okay. um, page four, uh, at the beginning of the liturgy in the, Eastern Church, uh, there's a rite, it, it, it's very roughly comparable to our intro, it, the entrance psalm or entrance hymn at the beginning, where the book of the Gospels is brought in, and it's going to end up being placed on the altar, just as it is here, right? And then, of course, used later on, and we'll hear the reading of the Holy Gospel from it. But there's this ceremony at the beginning, and as part of that, okay, the priest says this prayer. 
Master, Lord our God, who has established the orders and hosts of angels and archangels in heaven to minister to your glory, grant that holy angels may enter with us, that together we may celebrate and glorify your goodness. This is a prayer asking God send your angels. And then the same kind of thing happens in the second half of the liturgy in the portion roughly comparable to our offertory uh, where the altar is set, prepared for Holy Communion, right? And we sing, uh, um, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? And, and Peter sings the appointed verse, right? So it's at that point where in the Eastern liturgy, we also get a hymn. Under normal circumstances, the hymn is called the cherubic hymn. It's this. Let us who mystically represent the cherubim and who sing the thrice holy hymn to the life creating trinity now lay aside every worldly care so that we may receive the king of all who is invisibly escorted by the angelic hosts. Escorted where? Escorted to the altar. So think of the angelic hosts being present. On rare occasions when the liturgy of St. James is used, we actually have a much older hymn dating from the fourth century, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. Maybe you know the hymn version of that. First couple stanzas of that hymn, uh, it's just almost word for word you know, translation, not a paraphrase at all. Let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly minded for the King of kings and Lord of lords comes to be sacrificed and given as food to the faithful. The choirs of angels go before him with every dominion and power. The many-eyed cherubim, the six-winged seraphim, veiling their eyes and crying out the hymn, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. So there's two poles of, of our liturgy. We've got this invocation for the angels to come and then this assertion that they are here because angels go where Jesus is and Jesus is present in those two places in the liturgy for sure in the reading of the scriptures because Jesus says the scriptures are about him and and by the way what's our response after the uh, just before the Holy Gospel is read and then when the Holy Gospel has been completed the pastor says this is the Gospel of the Lord and what do you sing? Praise, Praise to you O Christ. You're not singing to a Jesus up off and away. You're singing to the Christ who is in the book okay, that you've just heard. You've just heard the words of Jesus. Um, so uh, take you through some texts here from the early church that I hope encourage you to think that you know you got angels with you. Uh, first here is from Cyril of Jerusalem and uh, this is uh, he is teaching his catechumens who are going to be baptized at the Easter vigil. See yourself already now presented before the angelic choirs. See Almighty God upon his throne, his only begotten Son to his right, the ever-present Spirit at their side, the thrones and dominions, the references of various classes of angels in that, all performing their ministry, and each one of you attaining his salvation. 
Hear already the blessed word which the angels will speak at the moment when, like the stars of the church, you will enter, your bodies splendid in their whiteness and your souls sparkling with a blinding light. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Great is the baptism that lies before you. That psalm verse was, at least in the Eastern Church, the, um, the words that were sung as the newly baptized went from the baptistry into the sanctuary then for their first communion. And the connection here, of course, being that why this verse about their sins are forgiven, well, we have Jesus' words in the Gospel of Luke, okay, that uh, there's more rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents, right? Okay, so there, there's, you know, the fact that you've just gotten your sins for, forgiven, okay, the angels um, are chanting in heaven. Um, but he's telling them to see yourself already now presented before the angelic choirs. Uh, sticking with uh, Cyril from, uh, this is from his mystagogy, which is the uh, instruction after baptism. So some instruction occurred before, and generally this teaching on what happened in your baptism and instruction on the Lord's Supper occurs after they've first taken their first communion. Um, and, uh, yes. and he's referring here to the, the exchanges in the service, like the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Lift up your hearts, we lift them to the Lord. And then this last one here, let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Is right to give him thanks and praise. So he's commenting here on that last exchange. For truly we are bound to give thanks that he called us unworthy as we were to so great grace, that he reconciled us when we were his foes, that he graced to us the spirit of adoption. After this, we make mention of heaven and earth and sea, of sun and moon, of stars and all the creation, rational, irrational, visible and invisible, angels, archangels, virtues, dominions, principalities, powers, thrones, of the cherubim with many faces, in effect repeating that call of David's magnify the Lord with me. We make mention also of the seraphim, whom Isaiah in the Holy Spirit saw standing round the throne of God, Isaiah 6. Well, with two... Two, their wings veiling their face. Two, their feet. Two, they flew, crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of Sabaoth, the Sanctus. And the reason for reciting this confession of God, delivered down to us from the seraphim, is this. So that we may be partakers with the hosts of the world above in their hymn of praise. So we are all joining in one choir. So it's not that... They're doing their, their thing up there, we're doing our thing down here. We've got, we're all part of one choir. Let's see. Origin of Alexandria in the middle of page five. Uh, Origin's a really interesting guy. He, he never gets an ST period in front of his name because he does some kinky things. But he prolific writer. He went, well, he went out and castrated himself. That's what he did. The bishop said, you ought not to have done that. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, any, but anyway, he, he wrote volumes of stuff. Uh, take this little snippet. The angels assist us, drawn by the reading of the scripture, which they delight in hearing. Of course the angels are going to show up because we're reading scripture, and that's what they like to hear. 
I have no doubt that there are angels in the midst of our assembly. Not only the church in general, but each church individually, those of whom it is said that their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven, Matthew 18. We just heard that a couple weeks ago. The angels rejoice and pray together with us. They assist the saints and rejoice in the church. We indeed do not see them because, well, our eyes are grown dim with the stains of sin, but the apostles see them as they were promised. Amen, amen, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God going up and coming down on the Son of Man. St. Ambrose talks about when we gather together, there's a twofold church present, that of men and of angels. Chrysostom, uh, the name means golden mouth, it's not his real name, it's his honorary title that the church has given him, St. John Chrysostom, um, considered one of the, the greatest of all preachers. Um, the angels surround the priest. The whole sanctuary and the space before the altar is filled with the heavenly powers come to honor him who is present upon our altar. Uh, top of your last page there, six. Think now of what kind of choir you're going to enter. Although vested with a body, you've been judged worthy to join the powers of heaven in singing the praises of him who is Lord of all. His sermon on the Ascension, he says, the angels are present here. The angels and the martyrs meet today. Thus, in the phrase you know, angels, archangels, and all the company of heaven. That certainly includes the martyrs. Um, they are with us together. They're with us together which is always a good thing when, as a parish pastor, of course, I had to officiate at numerous funerals. And uh, one comfort we can always give is that if the spouse who just died was a Christian and was given thus Christian burial, we should, we should be assured that they are with us when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Because I've, I've, I've so often found that, that I, I've found so many times that it's the hardest thing for folks to come back to church after they've lost a loved one. I had members of the board of elders who've lost their, their wife and they find it tough coming back to church. Not because they don't believe anymore, but whole host of things they don't want to be asked, how are you doing, and, and all, that, you know, all that kind of stuff. Guys. Come, come back and you'll be with your loved one. We've got the same Jesus that we're partaking of, one in glory, face to face. Us now is through a glass darkly. The other little thing that, that's going on here, can I leave you with this then, uh, is that the letter to the Hebrews is uh, perhaps the first Christian document to reference a Christian altar. This, this is probably the most argued over verse in the entire New Testament between Protestants and those who are not. <laughs> um, I like to think of myself as an evangelical Catholic. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. So in his whole discussion in, in, the, in the letter, he's been talking about those who are Jews who want these folks to come back to Judaism. And he says, we've got an altar which they have no right to eat. 
Christians have a right to this particular altar. Whether he's speaking metaphorically here or whether there's actually a physical thing that they are calling altar. In either case, he's referring to the Lord's Supper, the Holy Communion. Only Christians partake of the Lord's Supper, the Jews do not. And then Ignatius of Antioch picks that up, uh, as you see in his letter too, from 110 AD. Um, it's the first time outside a New Testament work that refers to a, a physical Christian altar. My point being that, uh, again, to tie this all together, that it's at the Lord's Supper where we join the whole company of heaven and are receiving God's gifts. And to all that then, if you're under persecution, being threatened some places, okay, uh, we've got umpteen number of stories where the angels are your help, your defense. Um, or as Luther would have us pray, let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. And that evil foe can take a number of different guises. All right. I guess we're at time here, so we gotta kind of wrap up. One question or two? Any thoughts? Lord, remember us in your kingdom. Teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.